Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And uh, welcome back to the programme after our little hiccup last week. And uh, to kick off the new year here properly at the Mind Renewed, I'm delighted at long last uh, to be, and I say at long last because of course this particular interview has been in the pipeline for several months. I'm delighted to be able to welcome to the programme Tom Secker of InvestigatingTheTerror.com and spyculture.com and for the handful of you out there who are not yet familiar with him tom secker is a uk-based writer researcher filmmaker and podcaster specializing in the study of terrorism the security services declassified history and the philosophy and politics of fear and he's perhaps best known for his work on the 2005-77 london bombings about which he has produced a large body of work most notably two feature-length documentaries seven seven seeds of deconstruction and seven seven crime and prejudice and most recently a book secrets spies and seven seven which having just read it i can say is absolutely excellent and it is a must read for anybody who's interested in this subject or indeed on the relationship between terrorism and the state or just interested in conspiracy theories in general you i'm basically saying you really do have to read this book it's very good so tom it's great to be speaking to you thanks ever so much for coming on well thank you julian for having me on the show it's good to be talking to you too Thank you. And I'm delighted that you came on, considering you're based in Yorkshire and I'm based in Lancashire. So that is very good of you to come on. <laughs> it's all right. We're both North. That's the main thing. Well, I'm, I'm only an honorary Northerner, because you can tell by my accent that I come from the south of England. So. It's all right. You had the good sense to move up here. <laughs> it is. <laughs> now, I want, of course, I wanted to ask you specifically about the 7-7 London bombings and uh, the questions that you have about what we've been told about that day and the, the events leading up to it. And uh, indeed, your concerns about the mainstream media and the alternative media, how they've engaged with this matter. But before we get into all that detail, could you tell us just briefly about how you got into doing all this stuff? I mean, what prompted you to get involved? Well, I was one of those people who, I suppose, read, read a lot in my teenage years. So I was already familiar with the notion of state terrorism, false flag terrorism, whatever you want to describe this area of research as being. I was already familiar with that before 9-11 happened, and I'm quite a young guy. I was only in my late teens when 9-11 happened. But nonetheless, I was already thinking along those sorts of lines as to what could this event be. And so four years later, uh, when 7-7 happened, and obviously happened in my own country, mm. um, I was naturally... By that point, I'd already not become part of the 9-11 truth movement, but I was following what was happening. I was watching the documentaries online. I wasn't really engaging that much in the research and the and the discussion about it. But I was familiar that there was this thing, a 9-11 truth movement by that point. So when 7-7 happened, I was listening to it live on the radio. Naturally, the same questions that had come flinging at me in the hours and days and months after 9-11, same thing happened. And about six months later, maybe it was more like a year later, when I had the time to start looking into it in detail, I did start looking into it in detail and did the same thing with 7-7, where I looked at what truth movement existed. I watched the documentaries that were available so far. I started tracking this thing and following this thing and exploring what people were saying about it and what other people had dug up. And then, you know, that leads to whatever, three years later, Four years later, I make Seeds of Deconstruction, and then we got the 7-7 inquests, the sort of uh, judicial process determining how these people died. 
in 2010-2011, and obviously following all the new evidence that came out from that, I made Crime and Prejudice in summer 2011, that came out, and then worked on the book. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> right, so you, you became more and more absorbed in this as you went along, as you... It was initially triggered, you say, by 9-11, but that then helped to form your interpretation of the things that were happening thereafter. Well, not necessarily formed by 9-11. I mean, mm -hmm. that was more the event that made me start really taking this seriously. The ideas were already in my head two, three, four years before 9-11. I read a lot of spy fiction and that kind of thing, and I read, I don't know, 1984, for example. I'd already read all these things in my early or mid-teens, so I was already familiar with this kind of dialogue and this, these kinds of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's turn to 7-7 itself then. Now, this is eight and a half years ago, so I think we do need a kind of short recap about this. So could you set the stage for us by giving us a, a brief sketch of what the official version, I suppose I should say official versions of that day roughly say happened? Okay, so on the morning of July 7th itself, 2005, there were four explosions, officially only four. There may have been more, depending on which media reports you follow. Four explosions in London. Three of them take place on underground trains, tube trains, at about 10 to 9. Um, the fourth one takes place on a bus, a red double-decker London bus, about an hour later. These are blamed on four young British Muslim men. Um, they were said to be suicide bombings, so the deaths included 52 completely innocent people, and supposedly also the four, four culprits also died in the bombings. And so the official story is these men travelled to London on the morning of 7-7, met up at King's Cross tube station, split up, got on their separate vehicles, and then blew themselves up and killed these 52 other people as well as themselves. That is the official story in a nutshell. Yeah, and um, in your work you point to uh, loads and loads of things about this narrative that you find unsatisfactory, to put it mildly. I mean, looking at this, it's quite a job to know where to start, really, because you bring out so many inconsistencies in the story. So let me jump in and ask you about a couple of things that one might think were so concrete that they would be beyond question. And uh, that's the underground lines and the bombs themselves. So do we know where these bombs went off, if they were bombs? Do we know how many bombs there were? Um, the short answer is no. The long answer is yes, with a big but after it. Um, everything that we know about this pretty much has come from one of two sources. That is the mainstream media on the one hand and the official police investigation on the other. Neither one of which are remotely consistent on any of these core questions. Where are the trains? In what direction were they traveling when the bombs go off? How many explosions were there? How many bombs were there? Where were the bombs? Were the bombs inside the trains or outside the trains? What were the bombs made of? All of this sort of basic stuff that you think in any murder investigation shouldn't be that difficult to establish in a consistent way. You find enormous contradiction, even from day to day or from hour to hour, between the mainstream media coverage and other mainstream media coverage, and even between the official public statements by the police and the investigating authorities. Mm. So, as I say, the, sh the short answer is no, the, the long answer is yes, but the big but is everything that we've got is massively inconsistent, and so neither of these two sets of sources are at all reliable. So let's just pinpoint some of these things then. So there were early reports of several explosions more than the uh, official story would have us believe is that right absolutely there was as many there were reports on the bbc um of as many as 10 11 explosions 
on the underground. Um, mm-hmm. There were reports of three different explosions on three different buses. That one seems to have just slipped down the memory hole. No one's really been able to track down these other potential explosions. They may not have happened. I mean, this may have been, to some extent, just terrible reporting and the difficulty of reporting on a massive live event. But at the same time, in some cases, you have several eyewitnesses talking about being on trains heading in the wrong direction, or you have people dying in these bombings who never should have been on trains in those places. You know, they should have already got off the train or they should have been on a train heading in the exact opposite direction on the same line, something like that. So Mm. with those, you really have to wonder, were these trains and, and I mean, the buses kind of was where it was. You can see it in the video and the photos. But with the tube trains, especially, you really do have to wonder whether or not this story is even true. I mean, regardless of which story you pick, there is now an official story in the Home Office report that says explicitly which directions and where these trains were. And you do have the police diagrams saying, oh, you know, we laser scanned the tunnels and determined that the explosions occurred at exactly these places. But that doesn't explain how it was that 10 days after the bombings, they were completely contradicting themselves. I mean, okay, great, you laser printed the tunnel. Who cares when you can't even issue a press release that's consistent with your previous press release? Hmm. And you brought out also in the book that there was a possibility of electrocution. I mean, there were several testimonies from people talking about great electric surges. And um, I understand this has led to a theory that this was essentially an electrical disaster. Is that right? And that the bomb on the bus was a staged event to cover this up? That's a hypothesis that has been floated. It's not one I particularly pursue in the book, because to be honest, it's Mm. not one I feel has that much weight to it. But I can see where people are coming from. I can kind of see it's not outside the realms of possibility that this was some kind of massive industrial accident on the London Underground and that these trains blew up due to some kind of electrical fault or massive electrical surge or something. And that therefore, yeah, like you say, the bombing on the bus was staged to make the whole thing look like a terrorist attack. That's certainly not outside the realms of possibility, but it is not one of the stronger hypotheses, I would say. Now, I want to ask you about these four alleged suicide bombers in a moment, in a little bit more detail. But I first want to ask you about an observation that you make in the book. And this is that uh, very, very early on, the media and the government started blaming Al-Qaeda for these attacks. And they were using that familiar phrase, this has all the hallmarks of Al-Qaeda. But as you say, this was well before there was any evidence that who had actually carried out these attacks. So, What do you feel this tells us about how this event, I mean, whoever caused it, was either designed or interpreted in some way to fit within a a larger terror narrative that the government and the media wanted to get across to the public? Well, the problem is that these particular types of attacks, bombings on the London Underground, go back a long, long way. They go back to the 1880s, I think, was the first bombing on the London Underground. So that's not particularly uncommon. And in those days, it was mostly... Uh, Fenians, Irish separatists, or anarchists. And these days, supposedly, the great big terrorist threat is radical Islamic suicide bombers and what have you. I'm sure some people just would have thought that anyway. That would have been their natural response to all of the predictions that had been made and all of the general discussion about the you know, terrorist threat in Britain. So that assumption in itself is not massively surprising. But the problem is, historically... It's primarily been the the Irish Republicans, to be honest, who've carried out continuous or semi-continuous bombing campaigns on the London Underground. And we're talking about several over decades. So 
for a historian of terrorism, someone like me, looking at this, I think, well, why wasn't there natural assumption that it could have been, you know, this could have been another reopening of the war with against the Irish Republican militants, given that that war has announced a ceasefire and then burst back into life several times. It wouldn't be that radical a notion in 2005 to suggest that. But no, no mm-hmm. one's talking about that. Everyone's just sort of talking about hallmarks of Al-Qaeda, hallmarks of Al-Qaeda. Did it have any of the hallmarks of the IRA, would you say? Only in the sense that these were multiple bombings on the London Underground, which is an attack the IRA have launched previously. And the only previous bombings of buses in this country that spring to mind are there was a bombing of a military coach in the 1970s that was blamed on Judith Ward. But she was innocent and she was a, shall we say, mentally troubled young lady who had a tendency to make false confessions. And the police basically ignored this and charged her with a crime and she was imprisoned for this this terrible bombing. But that was almost certainly carried out by Irish Republicans. And there was a bombing in 1996 in which the bomber actually died, which is also, at least officially, blamed on Irish Republicans. So if it hit the hallmarks of anything in terms of the history of British terrorism, it was Irish Republicans. Now, I'm not saying they did it at all. Um, Sure. No, no, of course not. I'm saying in 2005, an honest dialogue, an honest media discussion would have picked up on this. Would it not? No. But instead, we got all this hallmarks of Al Qaeda nonsense. So, do you feel that that was just a gut reaction because of, say, 9 11? Or do you think that this was actually trying to tell the public something deliberately? Well, the first way in which, uh, the first report, at least that I have in my media archive from 7 7, that uses this phrase hallmarks of Al Qaeda, attributes it to Saudi intelligence, sort of giving this to the BBC security correspondent Frank Gardner. So. The story appears to have originated in the intelligence services, not the British intelligence services necessarily, because it was attributed to the Saudis. But from then on, several officials were using this phrase. Jack Straw used the phrase that evening. And Jack Straw at that point was the Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, one of the anyway, major politician. And every pretty much every news outlet then echoed it over the following day and a half, two days. This phrase was being used on on almost every news broadcast I can find about 7-7, as I, you know, played on in my films. Um, (laughs) There's a couple of montages of hallmarks of Al-Qaeda. But that's because there are so many clips of people saying this. So like I say, if it's originated in the intelligence services, it's being endorsed by officials, you have to start thinking this is some kind of official story being moulded before they have any evidence for this. This is the official presumption of guilt, responsibility. Mm. Okay, so let's turn to these alleged suicide bombers themselves and their movements on that day. Now, according to this official narrative, we've got these, as you say, these four young radicalized Muslims, British-based, and they're planning and carrying out this atrocity. They meet up at Luton train station, they make their way down to London, they carry out these attacks. Now, what do we actually know about the movements of these men on that day? Because, I mean, I understand that there's doubt as to how many people witnesses saw and that some of the testimony changed over time, changed by the time of the inquest. So what do we actually know about these men on that day? Well, most of what we know comes from a trio of eyewitnesses, all of which are kind of inherently dodgy in themselves. If you look at their testimony, there is some degree of self-contradiction and there are, shall we say, certain prejudices in certain witnesses that you wonder about. And from the CCTV evidence. Now, if you accept that the CCTV evidence does actually show those four men then you can establish a reasonable amount about their movements on that morning. 
I'm I've never been a hundred percent convinced it is those four, but I've certainly never had a solid reason for thinking it isn't those four. If it isn't those four, it's four men that look like them. I'll say that much. If the CCTV is real, yes, these men did meet up. It seems in Luton Station car park at sometime around 7 a.m. on the morning of 7-7, and they did catch a train at about 7.25 to go to London and got off at King's Cross um, Thameslink and then walked towards the underground station. But that's all the CCTV shows. It doesn't show them getting to the King's Cross underground station. It doesn't show them splitting up and getting on different trains. It doesn't show Haseeb Hussain going and catching the bus that he supposedly blew up an hour later. It doesn't show any of that. And... The witnesses at each stage of the journey, starting off in Leeds, meeting up in Luton, getting to London, each one of the key witnesses that's cited in the Home Office report says in testimony, in statements to the police, and in some cases statements to the media as well, that they saw additional men, as many as two, three or four additional men, potentially, at different stages of this journey, rather than the numbers that should be there. Yeah, but this wouldn't be at the London stage, this was at the earlier stages, is that right? No, even Joseph Martokia, who was a witness at King's Cross, he's the one who supposedly saw a group of men having a kind of euphoric hug. Ah, And you remember this was Mm. played on in the Home Office report, and it was very much played on in the media as an indication that, oh, these men thought that they were on their way to paradise. Mm. That, you know, this was some sort of religious fanatical mission of some of some description that that was what that you know that's what they were trying to sell to us as the mo- the motive that these men did this and there's no great evidence of any of them being certainly either violent criminals or mentally so mentally troubled that they would do something like this or so fanatically ideological that they would do something like this there's no evidence of any of that in fact the only evidence they've ever really said is this hug at king's cross so, <laughs> be careful what you do yes indeed <laughs> well to a certain extent yeah particularly if you're religious because you know yeah. they do seem to like taking that one and you know if they're religious oh well that means they believe all kinds of things yeah. anyway joseph martokius witnesses this hug but he witnesses a group of men that he says are all Asian, and one of these bombers is supposed to be black. You know, he's supposed to be uh, a Caribbean guy. Yeah. He doesn't see anyone who's black. He sees only Asian guys, and he sees six of them. And he says he thought that they were a cricket team. <laughs> 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 so he may well have seen a, a group yes. of young Asian men who were on their way to a cricket match in King's Cross that morning. But it doesn't seem very likely that those, those six men, Asian men, were actually three Asian men and one black guy and that they were on their way to become suicide bombers. So the Home Office report and the media coverage doesn't tell you any of this. It doesn't bother saying there are massive problems with this absolutely crucial witnesses' story. They just keep reporting euphoric hug, euphoric hug, religious fanaticism, <laughs> you know, Islamic suicide bombers. And for some reason, people believe it. And you say that was six men that he said he saw. Is that right? Well, five or six, I think he said. Five or six. Because uh, Sue Clark said, I believe she said she saw six men at Luton Station. And you say that she was very, very clear about her testimony. But that changed later. She changed her testimony to fit the official narrative. Is that right? Broadly true, yes. Sue Clark was a witness at Luton Station, where these men are supposed to have met up. Three of the men are supposed to have come and come down from Leeds. The other one, Jermaine Lindsay, the uh, Jamaican fella, comes across from Aylesbury, and they meet up in Luton Station. She is there, and you can see someone on the CCTV turning up in Luton Station, parking their car, and taking walking in the way that Sue Clark said her journey was that morning. So there was someone there um, who walked past the two cars supposedly containing these four men. She says she saw as many as five or six in her original statement to the police within a matter of days. 
several years later, she's testifying at the inquests. She says, oh, no, 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 there was only four. Hmm. So you have to wonder, for one thing, is the person who testified to the police days after 7-7 the same person who turned up in court at the inquests? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Maybe not, though. And you have to wonder why the testimony changed. How could someone be so certain in a statement to the police about such a major crime? How could they be so certain a few days after 7-7 and yet have completely changed their mind several years later? I mean, what happened in that intervening period? Yes. Absolutely. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Unless the obvious implication is someone leaned on her to change her story. Someone said, no, 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 you only saw four people. Sure. Mm. The other one I wanted to ask you about was Richard Jones, because you say that he was the only witness placing Hussein on that bus, but that he was dropped as a witness later on. Yeah, I suppose that's fair. Richard Jones was a Scottish fellow who was on, I think, the lower deck of, yeah, the lower deck of the number 30 bus that exploded. And he got off shortly, basically, at the stop just before the bomb went off. So he narrowly escaped being caught up in this. He testified to the media, um, especially in the days after 7-7, that he saw a young Asian man fiddling with his rucksack on the bottom floor of the deck moments before he got off the bus and therefore only seconds before the explosion. The problem with this is that, well, there's several problems with this. Firstly, in his police statement, which we now have publicly available, he seems to have only noticed the Asian people on this bus. Doesn't seem to have noticed any of the other, you know, there were people of various different races, ethnicities, whatever, yeah. on this bus, but he only remembers the Asians. Um, <laughs> what that says about Richard Jones, I, I leave you to make up your mind. <laughs> Um, another problem is he's seeing a man on the bottom deck of the bus and the bomb clearly went off towards the rear of the top deck of the bus. So for his story to have been describing Hasib Hussain, he gets off the bus and within seconds, Hasib Hussain runs upstairs with his backpack, races to the back of the bus, sits down, takes his backpack off, blows himself up and no one notices any of this. <laughs> Uh, that would have to be true for this for him to have seen for this to you know all fit together with the official story but once again official report doesn't tell you this mainstream media don't tell you this the official report just says a man was seen fiddling with his rucksack on the lower deck before the explosion mm-hmm. so so you're left thinking oh and fiddling with his rucksack oh, yeah no suicide bomber i can see it i can see it but the guy's testimony doesn't back that up at all this guy is then trotted out for the bbc's conspiracy files show as though he's some kind of cruel victim because a few people on the internet said, oh, this guy did an apprenticeship at an explosives factory years and years ago. Oh, he must have been the bomber. Now, okay, that is a ridiculous argument. Um, I'm not saying it isn't. Uh, that's, you know, that's very thin. That's not how you solve a crime like this. Is, um, But the guy had repeatedly told misleading things to the press and completely let them run wild with it without once saying no no hang on that's not what i'm saying or no no that's not a fair conclusion to draw he never once interrupted the media in their turning of you know his testimony into this story about suicide bombers the bbc avoided all that focused solely on the accusation that he was potentially the bomber managed to discount that well okay yeah he wasn't the bomber i'm not saying he was um but focused all of the discussion on that rather than on his massively contradictory and problematic testimony before that. Then we get to the inquests and he's called as a witness and the prosecutor, uh, not the prosecutor, the government lawyer who's kind of directing the questioning basically says, but you're not saying you ever actually, you know, saw the bomber. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. 
It's like, well, you could have said that seven years ago. Well, six years ago by that point. Mm. You know, when, the, when all of the mainstream media was going around saying, this is the man that saw the bomber. You could have said, no, I didn't at that point, rather than wait six years later and then say it quietly in court. And if he didn't, then why have the Home Office included his thing about a guy fiddling with his rucksack in the Home Office narrative as part of their key evidence that this was a suicide bombing? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. It seems mm-hmm. now being written out of that. And what about this uh, character, Sylvia War, as well? This was uh, in Leeds, in Alexandra Grove, where she said that she saw, is it up to seven men? But uh, there are some strange things about what she said. She said that she saw a Jamaican amongst this number, but I understand that uh, the Jamaican Jermaine Lindsay was not supposed to join the group until Luton train station. Yep. And she also said, apart from the Jamaican, I guess, that they all look alike. So I don't know how much one is supposed to trust that she actually saw the people she's claiming to have seen. What are we to make of her testimony? Well, she's another curious figure. She's a woman who lived in Alexandra Grove up in Leeds, which is uh, the men supposedly had a flat up in Alexandra Grove that was the bomb factory. And you will have seen pictures of this on the news, the so-called bomb factory with these bathtubs with, you know, curious colored liquid in the bottom of it and that kind of thing. So three of the men, uh, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, Shazad Tanweer and Haseeb Hussain, are supposed to have met up there early in the morning of 7-7, picked up the bombs and taken them down to Luton Station where they met Jermaine Lindsay. Sylvia Wars is the only witness placing them at that bomb, so-called bomb factory on that morning. She says she woke up at about 4am, uh, looks out her window and sees this going on outside, sees these young men loading bags and things into cars. But the problem is, like you say, firstly, she says that Jermaine Lindsay was there, or at least the Jamaican was there when officially he's not supposed to be. Mm. Secondly, she says she sees six, seven men, potentially, and there's supposed to only be three. The third main problem is she sees them getting into two different cars and driving off, presumably, in somewhat different directions. The CCTV from Leeds at 4 a.m. only shows the car that supposedly has the three bombers in it, alleged bombers, in it. The other car, no one seems to be, no one seems to be able to trace this other car. And you would have thought... In a police investigation, they say this is where they made their weapons of mass murder. This is where they picked up their weapons of mass murder on the morning of the mass murder. You would have thought these three other men who got into this other car might be of some significance. You would have thought considerable police resources would have been devoted to tracing that down that lead. Yes, and so there was no follow-up on these other possible people then at all. Well, there was some degree of police investigation, but basically when they asked them at the inquest, they said, oh, we didn't find anything. Well, maybe that's because they never told anyone. I don't remember any police statement referring to a second car at Alexander Grove that morning. It's not like the police were, you know, getting it through to the press and saying, look, we need to trace these other people that this woman apparently saw. Mm. They, they didn't seem to bother telling anyone about that. We only really found out about that years later at the inquests. So I think it's safe to assume the police weren't all that interested. Because if they had been that interested, surely they would have been putting out press releases saying... Did anyone see this car? Did any, you know, does anyone, did anyone else in Alexander Grove see this? Did anyone in a nearby street see anything? You know, that's what you would do yeah. in a police investigation if you were being honest. And they didn't seem, it doesn't seem that they did any of that. So once again, it's a dishonest investigation. You brought up this business about the CCTV, and then uh, I wanted to ask you about that because this is one of the things that's most frequently discussed about Seven Seven, and. I think one would have expected there to have been loads and loads of video of these men at 
Luton Station, on the London Underground, and I guess on the bus at Tavistock Square. But my understanding is that there are a number of CCTV systems that were not working that day, and uh, some of them at just the crucial moments. Have I got that right? Yes, you have got that right. Inasmuch as the CCTV at Luton is curiously edited, shall we say, um, but it would take a lengthy explanation of what I mean by that. So to be honest, people are probably better off reading that story in the book. But it does, broadly speaking, identify these four men, or at least men that look like them, getting onto a train at Luton Station at seven, about 7.25. You then see the, what appears to be the same men getting off the train at King's Cross, wandering through a bit of King's Cross Thameslink Station, which is the overground station, going towards the underground. But then the whole CCTV system in King's Cross Underground apparently suffered a fault whereby it got stuck on one camera. And so for the following half an hour or so, the crucial period of time in which these men are supposed to have gone and split up and got on their separate trains and killed themselves, no camera. Just for that half an hour period? Yeah. Then it, then it comes back at 8.55 because we then see Hasib Hussain wandering around King's Cross, still alive, for about another 15, 20 minutes before he supposedly then goes and catches a bus and kills himself by blowing himself up. But the CCTV on the bus didn't work. Um, yeah. None of the CCTV from any of the buildings that we've seen, um, for example, from Euston, where he may or may not have got on this number 30 bus, none of that shows him. None of that shows him getting on the bus. So once again, for the crucial period when he was actually on this bus and riding on it, at least officially, CCTV not working. Yeah. You've got to kind of wonder at this. Why is it that in every case with all four men, the CCTV from the last 20, 25 minutes of their lives, at least officially, none of it worked. So we don't know what happened to them in those 20, 25 minutes. And I would suggest if these men were set up, there's plenty of time there to play with. 20, 25 minutes. If you find have some Hasib Hussain wandering around King's Cross at 9.20, but he's not supposed to have blown himself up on this bus until 9.47... That's quite a gap in which someone could just, for example, bundle him into the back of a van and take him off somewhere. Because the CCTV wasn't working, we don't know what happened in that gap. And it could be anything from they did actually carry this out, though I'm very, very doubtful about that by this point, through to someone kidnapped them. So it's, it's a big problem. It's a bit, but it's a bigger problem for the official story than it is for anyone else. I'm not really making a solid argument as to what happened. No, I'm just no. kind of hypothesizing to try and explain what the relevance of this missing CCTV is, that whatever it, what is on those tapes or would have been on those tapes if the systems were working would explain what happened here. But magically, none of them were working, so we don't know. No, I'm certainly not asking you to form a hypothesis, but it's very, very suspicious, certainly. And you were you alluding to that little still image from the CCTV footage at Luton Station a few minutes ago? Apparently shows the four alleged bombers walking towards the station door, where we get that very odd visual effect of horizontal metal bars seeming to pass through the bodies of one of the men. Did you allude to that a few minutes ago? Well, I mean, the thing about that was that that was an image that was released within, uh, I think, about two weeks of the bombings. Mm. A lot of people have looked at that and kind of picked holes in it. I don't think the image is fake. A lot of people have said that the image is fake. I don't buy that argument. It does look fake, it has to be said. Oh, it does look fake. 
But if it looks so fake, you've got to wonder why were the police releasing it? And a lot of people said, oh, that's because none of the CCTV exists. Then a couple of years down the line, the police released some of this. Well, three years down the line, the police released this CCTV that shows those men, whoever those men are, moving. And it seems to confirm that they were there. And, if, and the strange thing is, of all the different frames that they have of these four men, that is probably the worst one. That's probably the worst quality hmm. one. And that's the one they chose to release to the press and have everyone discuss and have all the conspiracy theorists <laughs> go wild over. I can't help but think they deliberately hmm. picked a really bad image so that people would go, oh, it's all <laughs> fake. It's all nonsense. Just so that they could then embarrass them by saying, no, it's not fake and it's not nonsense. But ultimately, even if it is real, what does it show? It shows four men walking into a train station. So what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but, but a lot of people have made a great deal out of that. So I suppose if that was their intention, then uh, that's worked really well. <laughs> well, if, if that was what they were trying to do, it's worked perfectly. I don't know that that's what yeah. they were trying to do. I'm just following a line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. There's something you bring up in the book is about this with regard to the CCTV footage is that this image of a Jaguar that strangely seems to be there at the dummy run on the 28th of June, also there on the 7th of July, but parts of the video are edited out so we can't see the movements of this Jaguar. What do you think the significance of this car is? Um, I suspect the reason for this car being here is that it was some kind of last-minute surveillance of these men. Um, this Jaguar is a, a car. Jaguar should be clear about that. <laughs> um, and obviously a Jaguar is the sort of car that a spook might drive. But, you know, leaving that aside for the moment, um, <laughs> this car is, is there on the, like you say, on the 28th of June, three of the men travel down from, two of them come down from Leeds and, and Jermaine Lindsay comes across from Aylesbury. They meet up in Luton Station and they take a trip to London and they travel around London a bit. And this is called the Dummy Run, a sort of test or uh, kind of pre-run, pre-practice run for the real thing. Um, the reason why it's not a practice run is firstly because there's only three of them. Secondly, because they didn't visit the same places that supposedly they bombed on 7-7. And thirdly, it took place at a different time of day. So the, the idea that anyone would do a practice run <laughs> where all the details are different is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> so this is what it's called. It's just called the dummy run, but in, in actual fact, it could not well, possibly be. Well, it's meaningless mean. to call it a dummy run, but again, not yeah. something that the mainstream media or the official story will tell you. Um, this Jaguar car, or at least what appears to be the same Jaguar car, is parked in Luton Station car park on the 28th of June at the exact time that the men from Leeds arrive and go into the station. On 7-7, it turns up just before the men from Leeds uh, arrive at the state uh, into the car park and go into the station and the way the footage is edited from in particular from 77 makes it very difficult to see what happened to this car whether it drove around and left the car park after these men had arrived or whether it went and parked at a different different bit of the car park and actually stayed there for a while and simply the fact of the same car being in the same place at two different times of day at the exact same time as these men were there, suggests that there has to be a connection. And when I was mooching around on Google Street View, looking at Luton Station, just trying to get a sense of the geography of the place, I noticed that the area where the Jaguar is parked on both days, the ground slopes upwards towards that point. And from that point, you can see everything. You can see the entranceway into the car park, you can see the station, you can see across the whole of the car park. You can see people walking into the station and coming out. You can see people approaching it. 
it's the ideal surveillance position if you were going to be spying on the train station. So that suggests this was a surveillance vehicle. This contained some sort of surveillance team. I'm not sure, obviously. All I've really got is some CCTV of a Jaguar. But follow it again, follow the line of thinking through. That's inevitably, I think, where you end up. Yes, it's another piece in the jigsaw, possibly, yeah. I'm going to throw a few questions at you now, if I may, about the... We're going back to the suicide bombers, and uh, there's quite a few questions here, so I hope you don't mind. Do we know what explosives they are alleged to have used? We know what explosives they are alleged to have used, but it keeps changing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So... It's one of those. It's, it's one of those that, questions yeah. where the answer is, you know, no or yes with a but. Um, <laughs> oh, that's probably all you need to say about that. <laughs> just briefly, starts out the official story was that they, these were military explosives. It then became, oh no, they must have been homemade explosives. Then it became they made them in this bomb factory. But the forensic science case is absolutely shocking at this point. The most basic point is those barrels of sludge that you may have seen pictures of this sort of orangey brown sludge that supposedly made up the explosive and that this was what they were cooking up in this bomb factory in Leeds. Uh, They didn't find traces of any of that anywhere in London. So what's the connection? How can they argue that that stuff was explosive used to blow up this stuff over here? You would have thought that's a pretty fundamental trail that they'd have to establish in order to, to make that argument, but they never established it. And again, everyone's just let them get away with it. Uh, The other problem is that it probably wasn't explosive. They said when they tested all of these different tubs of sludge that they only managed to make one of them sort of show explosive properties to sort of go bang or at least when they, you know, tried to when they tried to blow it up. So most of it didn't blow up. So therefore, my guess is whoever was making those tubs of sludge for whatever reason probably wasn't trying to make explosives or if they were, they were completely incompetent. Um, and therefore didn't do 7-7. Seven, seven. Uh, whoever did 7-7 seven, seven killed 52 people at least. And, you know, you have to be pretty competent in order to do that. Um, you have to know what explosives are. Whoever was making those tubs of sludge didn't know what explosives were, it seems. So, yeah, that's the answer. And no, we don't really know. Mm. The, the official story is complete nonsense. And there are several questions about the belongings of these alleged bombers. I, I understand that there were belongings found at different bomb sites I mean, you'd expect the the appropriate belongings for the appropriate alleged bomber to be at the right site but i understand that they were sort of scattered across multiple sites well in the case of mohammed sadiq khan they seem to have found either identity documents bank cards driver's license whatever or mobile phones that he was supposedly using and that they traced to him at all four of the bomb sites all three of the train explosions and the bus explosion as well now that I can't help but think that smacks of planted evidence. Not very sensibly planted evidence, admittedly. If there was someone running around trying to incriminate these guys on the evening of 7-7 planting evidence, they clearly didn't do it particularly coordinated or intelligent way. Um, But, yeah, why would he have given a mobile phone and his driving license to Jermaine Lindsay, or whatever it was, that was found in a Piccadilly line explosion? Why do that? (laughs) Normally, in the real, and to be fair, there is a very real tradition of islamic radical suicide bombings normally the tradition is they uh, don't identify themselves because as far as they're concerned they are leaving behind their corporal earthly identity and moving on to the the afterlife right mm, yeah so so therefore 
traditionally they wouldn't carry ID, they wouldn't carry mobile phones that could be traced back to them, they wouldn't do any of that. And the other problem is this: all of these items were found in such good condition yeah. that at the inquests they even had to they started guessing and speculating that oh well maybe if they put them in a plastic bag when they got and when they got onto these trains they dropped the plastic bag and then for some reason walked 20 feet away and blew themselves up there. Maybe if they did that, that would explain, you know, how it is that we managed to find these things in such good condition. I mean, it's absurd. Why wasn't anyone saying the reason why he found these almost pristine items in all these different places is because someone else put them there? Mm. That's the logical conclusion. That's the only real logical conclusion we can draw from this. Well, they also suggested that they deliberately put these things in a position so that they could be found and therefore identified and then moved away and did the bombing. Well, they also suggested that what if there was some sort of other person whose job it was to make sure that the identity documents survived? They were talking about a sort of suicidal equerry or something. <laughs> I mean, they, they were talking about some really bonkers ideas at these inquests to try and get around the you know, the thing that would be obviously staring you in the face if you were being honest about this. Um, I suppose it's, of course, again, it's possible that someone could get on a train, throw a bunch of ID on the floor, walk down the other end of the train and blow themselves up. But you would expect someone to notice. You would expect there to be a witness. Sure. You would expect there to be some kind of indication that this is what actually happened. And yet, in particular, on the Piccadilly line train, for Jermaine Lindsay to have done that, given where his ID was found, he would have had to push past maybe 30 people. Again, with no one noticing this, is this really plausible? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he was a big, he was a big guy. You know, he'd, he'd push past, someone pushes past you on the tube, on a really crowded tube train, when there's no obvious reason why he's pushing past you. He could just, you know, wait where he is until his stop. You'd notice it. In fact, you'd expect someone to sort of maybe mutter something at him or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. None of this happened. Yeah. No one remembers yeah. any of this. So the story is just it's just ridiculous. Well, uh, as somebody who travelled on the tube train quite a lot when I was in London, I can say that's absolutely right. You, you, there's mm. no way you can miss anybody who's barging past you like that. You would remember it, certainly. Yeah, it's just an implausible story. It didn't happen that way. And you also say that uh, the reported positions of these alleged bombers after the, <laughs> I use the word alleged all the time, these alleged bombs went off. In many cases, these don't match up either. They don't match up with where the people are supposed to have been in the first place and where the explosion's supposed to have happened and therefore where their bodies ended up. Um, mm. You either have the problem of, in Haseeb Hussain's case on the bus, we don't actually know that it was... Well, we don't actually know that any of their bodies were found at the scenes, but we have no description of his body being found and identified at the scene and being recovered for post-mortem and what have you. We have a diagram showing where his body supposedly landed, but when you look at the directions of where the different people were supposed to be on the bus and where they ended up, sadly dead, sort of being blown out into the street, they're being blown around in all these different directions, some of them actually going through the path of the bomb in order to end up on the other side of it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and there was a one person who you say actually ended up on the lower deck, Yeah, yeah. Uh, even though there was no hole blown in the floor. There was no hole blown in the floor of the bus. You can see this evidently from the video and photographs. And yet the woman who is supposed to be sat next to Haseeb Hussain and therefore should have been blown outwards, he was sat on the aisle seat, she was sat in the window seat, she should have therefore gone outwards um mm. she ends up instead ending up in the middle going forwards 
on the lower deck. That's supposedly where her body was found. How on earth could it? Well, it couldn't have got there. That you know, that physically isn't possible, yeah. according to everything we know about the world. And it's extraordinary that uh, there was no hole blown in the floor, whereas with the trains there were. <laughs> and in some cases there were multiple holes blown in the floor of these trains, mm. in some cases quite some distance apart, at least according to what the witnesses say. So again, you have these, you just have a, a physically impossible scenario. A single backpack bomb could not produce these results. A single backpack bomb made of homemade explosive does not create a spatiotemporal vortex that sucks things in and then spits them out at random angles. You know, it blows things up. That's what it does. Therefore, things get further away from it. <laughs> you know, right. That's an explosion. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to be sort of simplistic about this, but you have to just keep these basic simplistic things in mind when looking at this stuff. Because if you do, you look at these police diagrams. These are official diagrams. You can download these from the Inquest website. You can download them from my website. You can read them in my book. This is what they're actually saying, is that in the case of Mohammed Sadiq Khan on the Edgware Road train, he would have had to have been sucked into the explosion and then blasted out at about a 90 degree angle from the angle he went in at in order to end up where he supposedly ended up. But where he ended up in the police diagram is not where they describe finding his body two days later. So what on earth is going on? Not, a not very plausible story is what's going on most fundamentally. And... As you say, most fundamentally, there are even questions about the explosions themselves, because I understand that there were witnesses who said that these explosions came from underneath the carriages rather than in these rucksacks. Was that fairly widely attested? Yeah, the predominance of witnesses either say that these explosions came through the floor of the carriages as though they were somehow built into the floor or strapped underneath the train, or testify things that would be consistent with that. They may not have explicitly said where they saw the explosion from, but lots of people said that there were lots of holes blown in the floors of the carriages. Well, how can one small backpack bomb blow a hole in the floor 10, 20 feet away? It can't. But if there were bombs in some way built under the carriages, they could. And like you said before, there are reports in every single one of these trains of large craters being blown by the bombs in the floors of the train carriages. Now, you think about a train carriage underground train carriage it's built more substantially than the upper deck of a bus so therefore the material is stronger therefore if a bomb blows a hole in the floor of a train carriage it would have to blow a hole in the floor of the upper deck of a bus yet it didn't so the answer to that is whatever bombed those trains wasn't the same thing that was used on the bus for the official story to be true it has to be they have to all be bombs from that bomb factory up in leeds and so that if you like that one fundamental fact just disproves the official story it cannot be true yes this whole thing is uh, as you speak is just unraveling <laughs> all the time <laughs> um the one other thing which uh, i'm going to invite you to continue unraveling is this uh, idea that the bombers were the alleged bombers were killed at canary wharf by snipers because they were involved in this uh, exercise which they didn't realize they were going to be killed and so they uh, it was necessary to take them out, and uh, the, I understand this is quite a popular view. Do you think there's any good evidence for this view? There isn't any good evidence for it, no. It is a popular view because it well, it was made popular largely by 7-7 Ripple Effect, the, the film made, uh, 2007 film made about this, um, and various proponents of the same hypothesis that's explored in that film, um, all of which come in for considerable criticism in my book. But... The problem is there isn't a single witness to this taking place. And you would have thought if two or three men were shot dead by police snipers in Canary Wharf, one of the busiest, most sort of, if you like, 
hub, one of the hubs in London on a day when there's no public transport, so the streets are full of people. How could they do that without someone noticing? I mean, in the the far reaches of my mind, I can conceive of certain ways in which that might, I suppose, have been done. But you've got to be realistic here. If that happened, if those men were there, and if they were shot dead by police snipers, someone would have seen it because it would have had to have been close enough for someone to have seen it. Because mm. those streets, like I say, the streets were full of people. So how did this start at all? Where did this idea come from? Uh, it came through rumours and anonymous tips in, in the mainstream media coverage on the day of 7-7 and to a certain extent in a couple of, for a couple of weeks after 7-7. But every time, it doesn't trace back to any kind of nameable source, any kind of person I could go to today and say, OK, mm. what did you see? Tell me what you saw. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all ears. Sure. It's always someone, someone's friend heard something or someone saw something that might indicate that. There was a lockdown at Canary Wharf that day, I should say. The reports of there being a kind of lockdown where people were told to stay away from the windows of their offices and were kept indoors for several hours, that did all happen. But that's standard, that standard procedure because the last major terrorist attack in London before 7-7 was a bombing at Canary Wharf. Right, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Well, this, this lockdown was a response to what had happened. Yeah, it's one of, it, basically, Canary Wharf is it's kind of like the lower Manhattan of London in certain respects. It's a quite important financial centre and therefore an obvious terrorist target. There are a number of these sorts of locations across London, Whitehall being another, Parliament, whatever, um, and they are all when a terrorist attack is reported, they are all locked down. That isn't just a blanket order that goes out because they suspect that people are going to try and target these places. All of these people who've, who've propagated this notion that the men were shot at Canary Wharf that morning, not one of them has mentioned that the last major terrorist attack in London was at Canary Wharf and that this maybe explains the commotion at Canary Wharf that morning. None of them have given you that very valuable context in which to make sense of this. And... I don't want to dwell on them too much because the major criminals here are the government, the police investigation and the mainstream media. Their crimes are far, far worse than those of a few conspiracy theorists. But I do think you have to have a kind of minimum intellectual standard when you approach these things. And to be honest, some of those people failed my minimum intellectual standard. And so I'm going to say so. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's just move on and not spend any more time on it then. If that's how you feel about it. Um, I did warn you that I wanted to ask you about some of these backstories to these alleged suicide bombers. And um, as I said to you before the interview, this could each one of these little elements here could be an interview in its own right. So please be as brief as you, you care to be. I want to ask you about the Ikra bookshop and Operation Crevice. So uh, could you tell us something brief about the Ikra bookshop learning centre in Leeds? How does this establishment fit into this whole picture? And what's the connection to this mysterious guy, Martin McDade? Okay, the Ikra bookshop was a bookshop, a uh, Islamic-themed, if you like, bookshop up in Leeds that ran from about 2001 to 2005, maybe 2002 to 2005, so the few years before 7-7. Various people were involved there, including Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shazad Tanweer, two of the alleged bombers, and uh, two of the three men that were later prosecuted but not convicted of being co-conspirators in the 7-7 plot. So this bookshop has been portrayed as a hotbed of Islamic radicalism and all of this kind of stuff. And supposedly this is where these men were having late night 
religious discussions and, and fanatical political discussions. And this is supposedly where they all radicalized each other and started themselves down this path towards becoming suicide bombers. That is basically the official story. The problem is there were a whole bunch of police in, and security service investigations into this ICRA bookshop before 7-7, all of which mysteriously failed to uncover that anything untoward was going on there, and all of which covered up the connection between the alleged bombers and this guy Martin McDade, who was the man who was actually running the ICRA bookshop and everything that was going on around it. So this guy is a, a white convert to Islam who used to be in the special boat service, like the naval version of the SAS. So he was an elite counter-terrorism commando, and he just so happens to turn up after 9-11, running a radical Islamic bookshop in Leeds, and it just so happens that among the few people involved there, two of them end up being accused of being suicide bombers. Something isn't quite right <laughs> in this story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I could go into endless amounts of detail about this, and I have I have this story pretty thoroughly documented. And if you if you get the book, you can see the documents in the back that relate to McDade and, and establish, you know, what what was going on there and what it is that they mysteriously managed to miss before seven seven. And the basic implication is he's some kind of covert agent, he's some kind of secret agent, a covert operative, whatever, working for the British security services. Still, I mean, if that's what he was doing back in the 80s when he was in the art in the military intelligence in in the special boat service it's probably not an unreasonable bet that that's still what he was doing in 2005 so it does seem to make sense indeed and that would therefore explain why it is that these investigations went nowhere is because they weren't supposed to go anywhere they weren't supposed to uncover really what mcdade was up to so you said that this Ikra bookshop was portrayed as a hotbed of Islamic extremism. What evidence is there that uh, any of these guys, apart from possibly McDade in this sort of twisted sense, were actually extreme? Nothing, really, <laughs> to be honest. Just, just said to be so. <laughs> well, they said that when they raided this bookshop after 7-7, they found all kinds of extremist literature there. But when I got a copy of the Charities Commission report into the ICRA bookshop because this there was a registered charity running out of this bookshop um, on which Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shazad Tanwir's names are actually on the paperwork for this. Uh, so that is one of the things tying them to it. Mm. When, I, when I read the Charities Commission report into all of this, they said that that wasn't the sort of material that they found, that there was nothing there that would be considered truly extreme that there would maybe, you know, the odd pamphlet with the odd sort of radical slogan on it, but nothing more serious than that. And, you know, how many how many bookshops and how many bedrooms and how many offices in this country do you reckon you could find a few radical slogan pamphlets in? Probably quite a lot. None of those people are going to become suicide bombers. So, yeah, the evidence that this was a truly radical place is more or less non-existent. Do you want to say something about uh, Operation Crevice and uh, how that relates to these alleged bombers? And uh, I'm inviting you here really to say something about these three guys, Mohammed Khayyam Khan, also known as Q, and Omar Khayyam, and Mohammed Baba. Have I got that? Have I said that correctly? <laughs> yeah, OK. Well, similar sort of story. These uh, Operation Crevice was a massive counter-terrorism operation, an international one in Pakistan, uh, in the United States and in this country. Why it involved the United States is a curious one because there was no, there's no even hint that there was a, an attack planned in the United States as part of this. But yet U.S. intelligence were informed throughout this and were part of this process. And this went on from early 2003 to 
early mid 2004 so around the two years before 7 7 uh, this massive counterterrorism investigation the biggest one in britain up until that point um they end up arresting a bunch of men who they call the fertilizer bomb plotters people may remember this on the news the fertilizer bomb plot that they made a big fuss about basically this is because omar Khayyam had stockpiled some fertilizer stuck it in a locker up that was full of special branch cctv cameras <laughs> right um, and he, he's supposed to be the ringleader of this plot is that right he's supposed to be the ringleader of the plot yes mm. he was the focus the investigation started off as an investigation into this guy mohammed Kayum khan known as q and then starts to focus on omar Khayyam and his network of people around him q is never arrested uh, even though the investigation begins with him as a supposed al-Qaeda facilitator, and even though he was the guy who was sort of uh, managing this network around Omar Khayyam, he's never arrested. He's never called as a prosecution witness. He's never called as a defense witness in the inv- in the trial that came out of this investigation. He has just disappeared. Okay, he's he's number one. Omar Khayyam does end up being arrested. He goes on trial. When he's on trial, he says that he'd been to a, a training camp in Pakistan around the year 2000 that was being run by Pakistani military intelligence, the ISI, comes into court after, after having said this, there's a couple of days break for the weekend, he comes into court, I think, on the Monday and says, the ISI have had words with my family, basically threatening them, and I can't say anything further about any of this. And so I'm not going to testify any further in this trial. And obviously, as a result, he was convicted because he couldn't defend himself. So he's two. The third guy is Mohammed Junaid Babar. He is a Pakistani-American who, between late 2001 and early 2004, was running a training camp. Well, he was getting involved in radical Islamic activity in Pakistan, and around 2003-2004, he's running a training camp in Pakistan. This training camp is visited by the people who are ultimately arrested as part of Operation Crevice. This is one of their stopping-off points in the so-called terrorist plot that they were doing. The camp is also visited by Mohammed Sadiq Khan, the supposed ringleader of the 7-7 plot. The problem is, Junaid Babar becomes an FBI cooperator instantly on his return to the United States. And even mainstream media coverage of this have suggested Junaid Babar was an American spy. Because everyone who, who ever passed through his terrorist training camp pretty much has ended up on trial for terrorism charges with Babar being the main witness against them. And some of these people have ended up with 30, 40 years. Babar served four and a half. So he's the one who sets up the training camp. He's the one who's running the training camp. He's the one who's liaising with Al-Qaeda and supposedly providing money and equipment to Al-Qaeda. Some, you know, random British Muslim happens to pass through his training camp for whatever reason. They get 10, 20, 30 years. He gets four and a half. Again, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture is it looks like Operation Crevice was a massive provocation and entrapment operation, that this wasn't an earnest intelligence investigation into a bunch of people who were genuinely dangerous, that this was about setting people up, and that Mm. Q, Babar, and potentially Omar Khayyam were involved in setting up the rest of them. Was it actually this this camp in Malakand, was it actually a terrorist training camp? Do we know that? Well, they did. From the descriptions of people who went there, they were messing around with weaponry. 
and to a certain extent with explosives. But it depends what you really mean by a terrorist training camp, doesn't it? Because some people, mm. like, you know, some people in this country will go off to America and fire off a few handguns at some ranch somewhere. And I mean, it, is, it doesn't appeal to me, but I've got no problem with them doing it. Um, I wouldn't consider that to be terrorist training. And yet if a Pakistani guy from this country goes off to Pakistan and does the same thing out in, you know, the hills of, of Malakand, it's called terrorism training. If they want to call it terrorism and they can find some other point, like you once said something rather radical at a demonstration or something, they might call you a terrorist. But it certainly seems if you're some banking executive who works in the city of London and you decide to go off and fire a few rifles at some ranch in Texas, they're pretty much not going to call that terrorism now, are they? So it depends on who you are. If you're an ordinary person, I'd be worried. If you're not, if, if you're a banker, I wouldn't. <laughs> so I suppose the general advice to people is, is probably not to go off traveling around the world firing guns at things. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Yeah, I shall put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be my advice. I like I say, I don't have a problem with people doing this, but yeah, you might get yourself into some trouble if you do. So, would you say then that you think it is most likely that Babar, Kayam, Q, and even McDade were all working for Western intelligence agencies all along throughout? through all of this uh, Kayam, i'm not so sure about because he's ended up being kind of hung out to dry and he's sitting in prison for the next well it's going to be at least another 20 years um right. i suppose there is such a thing as a disposable agent a disposable intelligence asset someone you do hang out to dry in that way that's not unheard of um one might look at the watergate burglars as a kind of parallel they, they served at least a few years in prison and their lives were pretty much destroyed in a lot of ways. And they were only the tip of the iceberg of a massive intelligence operation. So Kayam, maybe. Q, almost certainly, because he's, he's never been arrested. And McDade has disappeared, is that right? Well, yeah, Q, Q and McDade have both just disappeared completely. Mm. They have never been really heard of since. McDade was last seen in, I think, Oman, teaching English at some college in Oman and occasionally ranting about Islam or something. But we really don't know where, he, where he's at now. If he is a spy, then he's gone off somewhere to be something else, I suppose would be the answer. Q, like I say, disappeared except for the BBC did manage to track him down to a cafe uh, in Luton, which is where he lived, um, worked as a taxi driver. But when they went into this cafe... There was this sort of confrontation whereby the cameramen were directly confronted and they were basically shouted at and pushed out of the cafe. And it did strike me watching this that this was perhaps a kind of staged confrontation. I'm not sure. I mean, you can watch the video on my YouTube channel and make up your own mind, to be honest. So those two, I would circle very probable. Babar, I would circle as definitely being an intelligence agent because of the statement of a senior FBI counterterrorism officer who said that Babar provided the American intelligence with the access to groups that would not have existed without him. Now, if Babar was a, let's say, authentic terrorist up until the point that he returns to the US in uh, March 2004 and then becomes an FBI cooperator and is in custody for the next four or five years... What access did he provide them? He doesn't provide them any access. He provides them information because he's cooperating. But he doesn't provide them any access. The only way he provides them access is if he's an intelligence agent 
before his return to America, i.e. while he's running this camp in Pakistan. So the only way that statement makes sense, and that was a statement made in a BBC documentary, so I have a copy of this, there is no dispute that is what the man said. Um, the only way the statement makes sense is if Babar was a spy from before then. And of course, if Babar is, that makes the whole of Operation Crevice look different. So that makes it more likely that Q is. And that makes it thus, in a tangential way, a bit more likely that McDade was because he plays a very similar role and has a very similar story to these other guys. And it's that sort of thing. I mean, spotting the spies is a difficult thing to do. I've been doing this for 10 years and (laughs) I'm still not brilliant at it. I do make mistakes, I'm sure. But when you have that kind of biography, this person who manages to travel around the world, mysteriously manages to accomplish all these things is never interfered with or never properly investigated by the security services and then mysteriously gets away with either a really small sentence or with just vanishing into the ether, you've got to say, that sounds like a a spy. That sounds like a secret agent. It just does. Certainly seem rather difficult to tell any other story about the guy that would make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, well, let me let me just uh, throw this at you as a as a kind of summary uh, so far. Do we have the picture of these, uh, as I say, alleged suicide bombers with perhaps extremist sympathies, maybe not, maneuvered like pieces on a chessboard into positions where they could be blamed for things, plausibly blamed for things that they may not actually have done? Is that what we're seeing with this broader picture? I would go perhaps one further than that. I'd say. This is what I say in the book. Every time one of these alleged 7-7 bombers does something incriminating in the years before 7-7, they do it in connection with one of these men. And so if if these three men, or potentially four men, including Kayam, are working for Western intelligence, MI5, MI6, whoever, then doesn't it not sound like they were working as uh, as agent provocateurs? And if they're working as, as agent provocateurs to fit up all these people accused of the fertilizer bomb plot... Is it not at least plausible that they were also working as provocateurs to set up these men to look like suicide bombers? Because let's face it, the evidence that they were actually on those vehicles blowing themselves up is extremely thin, even if if it even exists at all. So an awful lot of the dialogue and the media coverage that's tried to make it look like these men were guilty has been based on, oh, they were involved in this radical bookshop. Oh, they met up with this bunch who were convicted of the fertilizer bomb plot. Oh, Sadiq Khan went to Pakistan to this terrorist training camp. But if they only did those things because of their contact with secret agents, it seems like they too are being set up. And therefore, it's at least plausible that they were manipulated into doing incriminating things as part of an entirely premeditated plot to blame them for mass murder and that the people who manipulated them were the security services that's entirely plausible to me yeah okay well i want to ask you a little bit about predictive programming and this is quite a convoluted question so brace yourself for this i want to ask you about your suggestion that predictive programming particularly on the television, may have been part of the preparation for 7-7. But I want to ask this in relation to questions to do with Peter Power's crisis management response exercise on 7-7. Now, the film 7-7 Ripple Effect claims it's highly probable that the alleged bombers were patsies recruited for this Peter Power's exercise and that this exercise was turned live, as it were. And uh, so it became a real terror event. But you argue that far too much is claimed about that exercise and that 
Perhaps a more plausible way of looking at it, if there is a connection at all, is that Peter Power's exercise might itself have been the result of predictive programming. Now, could you explain your thinking along those lines? Well, first up, I should define what we mean by predictive programming. I mean, essentially, propaganda regarding the future. I mean, uh, art or culture or TV shows or whatever that predict the future and seek to shape people's opinions and expectations about the future. The way in which this normally works in the, as I see it in the current sphere, is through films and television. But you can find examples from other other spheres. And if you think about it, it it's perfectly logical thing. It sounds like a kind of bonkers idea to try and predict events in the future and make people react in a certain way to them. But given that we are, I think most people listening would agree, we are propagandized about what's going on right now in our own lives and told to blame this set of person, people or that set of people rather than focusing usually on the truly responsible. And we are given quite a lot of propaganda about the past, told us, you know, this is where our country or our people came from. This is our origin myth of and therefore we are this sort of people rather than that sort of people and therefore we should do this rather than that because it's in keeping with our traditions and i'm not saying every time someone says something like that it's propaganda or not in the pejorative sense of propaganda but if you if we are given propaganda about the past and propaganda about the present then it's only logical that we would also be given propaganda about the future so that's all i really mean by predictive programming the way this plays out with a very specific event like 77 is that in the the same three to four year period between 9-11-7-7 happening, the same period that all of this stuff is going on with these mysterious apparent secret agents, there are a whole series of television shows that all broadcast on the BBC, all on the state propaganda, state broadcaster channel, all of them produced by the BBC, that predicted 7-7, that portrayed Islamic suicide bombers attacking London, and this wasn't just one TV show or two TV shows, which you might think may be a coincidence. You know, people make TV shows. Sometimes the things they portray in them come true. So what? But when you have a pattern of five, six, seven, eight TV shows, you're talking about a show every few months in the run up to seven, seven was saying there's going to be an Islamic suicide attack in London. And sooner or later, that message gets home. And so when 7-7 happens, when they start all of this hallmarks of Al-Qaeda nonsense, they're kind of calling back to that. And they're kind of playing on the effect, the build-up of all of that propagation, all of that information being thrown at people. And so it's not that surprising that their reaction was, oh, yeah, yeah, it sounds like Al-Qaeda. It sounds like suicide bombers, because that's what I've been seeing on television for the last five years. Yes. Um, now, as this relates to Peter Power and the terrorism training exercise that he was running on the morning of 7-7, that same hypothesis, that, if you like, alternative conspiracy theory of what happened, was also predicted in these very same TV shows, sometimes in the same episodes of the same TV shows. You mean that, that there would be an exercise that went live? That there would be an exercise that would be somehow connected to the real attack, yes. Mm. For example, there is a episode of the TV show Spooks that broadcast exactly two years before 7-7, wherein MI5 are running a emergency response exercise, and in the middle of the exercise, it turns out to be a real attack. So, basically, the same hypothesis that people focused on Peter Power after 7-7, well, some people did, was predicted in this TV show 
about the security services and about terrorist attacks exactly two years before 7-7. And when I say exactly, I mean down to the day this show broadcast on the 7th of July 2003. So, you know, spooky coincidence or what. But there is also a a made-for-TV movie called Dirty War. And this broadcast, just like Spooks did, this broadcast both in this country and in the United States, which, if you think about it, were the two main audiences for 7-7, if you like. Uh, this film broadcast in both, and this was in uh, September 2004, it showed in this country. I think it was early 2005 in the US, so only a matter of months before 7-7. And this is a two-hour feature-length movie that depicts a terrorist attack on London by four Islamic suicide bombers. <laughs> so exactly the same as the official story. Two of them attack Liverpool Street Station, one of the targets on 7-7. At the start of this film, there is a emergency response training exercise a sort of suited and booted you know we've all got our gas masks on and all of that kind of training exercise and the bombing that takes place at the end of the film is a more or less replication of the same scenario that they were training for and just to make it even more fun the other two suicide bombers get shot by police snipers (laughs) right (laughs) so you can see you know the very conspiracy theories that would leap up both official and unofficial both official and alternative that leapt up in this dialogue after 7-7 they were all predicted before 7-7 sometimes multiple times in popular entertainment media and whether or not you buy the idea that this was intentional i don't have absolute proof of that i'm not claiming to Mm. you can't deny that it must have had an effect that it must have had an effect in shaping the dialogue and shaping the discussion. And this is an effect that no one in the mainstream media talks about, hardly anyone in the alternative media has talked about with regards to 7-7. And so that's why I've devoted so much time to it, is because I think this is a real phenomenon. This has, a, has had a real effect. And at the very least, we need to be aware of that. Like I say, whether you buy into the notion that it's intentional or not. Well, I will point out that the show spooks does have advisors from the security services working on it so if they were weaponizing culture in this way using culture as a weapon to shape people's expectations in this way that they had a means of doing that it doesn't prove that they were doing it it just you know shows that they could have been um but whether or not you buy into the notion that's intentional i don't think you can just reject the notion that it's uh, relevant Mm. i do think it's relevant and important sure so but if you do buy into were you to buy into the idea that this is intentional then how would you interpret the crisis management response exercise on that day i would interpret peter power as a patsy um i would suggest that someone set him up the official story is that it's four muslim suicide bombers right so they can get that story out there no problem and an awful lot of people are going to buy it But what do you do about the people who aren't going to buy that? Because let's face it, by 2005, that was a considerable number of people who were already predisposed to not believe that official story. I was one of them, but there were plenty of others. I'm not a unique person in that regard by any means. So what do you do about them? Well, you set them up with a misleading alternative, Patsy. You know, you get them talking about Peter Mm. Power. And if you're MI5, who is my... I suppose, main suspect, my suspected culprit for all of this. That's exactly what you would do. You get most of the public looking in one direction, Muslim suicide bombers. You try and get everyone else looking at Peter Power. No one's looking at MI5, are they? So therefore, mission accomplished. So I'm suggesting Peter Power may have been somehow engineered into place 
to be running this exercise, which does just seem to have been an office-based thing. There is some dispute about that, but to my mind, it's probably true that this was just an office-based kind of desktop exercise rather than a suited and booted exercise. Mm. Um, uh, and it's often said that it matched exactly what happened or very, very close to what happened, but you argue that's not the case. Not really, not from the details that he's given. For one thing, there's no bus bombing in his scenario. So that's one factor that's you know, completely different. Mm. Um, for another thing, when he went on TV that evening to talk about this exercise that he was running, and that in itself is suspicious, because why would he? Why would he incriminate yeah. himself? <laughs> and, you know, and why didn't more people ask that question when they started getting a bit wild about Peter Power? But mm. anyway, that's kind of in the past now. Um, yeah, he said, oh, it was the exact same stations where the bombs went off this morning. But at that point, as we referred to at the top of the show, the media reporting on where these explosions had taken place was really was all over the place anyway. So how did he know mm. which stations he was referring to? And when you look at the details he made available later, OK, he gets some of the stations right. But there's nothing like I say, there's no bus bombing and there's no bombing over near Edgware Road. His scenario only had bombings around the King's Cross, Liverpool Street, sort of central east London area rather than central west London area. So it's nowhere near as close to the scenario of what at least officially really happened. As people have made out, people have got a bit carried away with that and sort of pointed at this two minute Peter Power interview as though that proves everything. And get carried away with the uh, statistics as well. The probability that this is a trillion to one or something, whatever. I don't know what the statistic is. Yeah, yeah. People, people have got totally carried away with statistics, but they always do. People think, oh, there's, there's magic in the numbers when all they've really got is a bunch <laughs> of numbers. <laughs> and whether or not their numbers are even right is, is a matter of some dispute. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to prattle on about statistics because that's not very interesting. <laughs> uh, you brought up uh, MI5 there just a minute ago. And, of course, you've been accused of working for MI5, which, of course, I, I don't know whether you do or not. But I think it, I certainly think it's unlikely. Um, and that leads me to ask you about this whole phenomenon of conspiracy theorizing, which you do go into in, in some depth towards the end of your book, um, which we can, we can only touch on it here, of course. And uh, you criticized, and I think quite rightly, much of the so-called alternative media for being sloppy in its research and uh, too quick to become wedded to particular conspiracy theories, alternative conspiracy theories, um, such that conspiracy theory orthodoxies emerge that can stifle research and create infighting between different camps. And you bring up the, I think, very intriguing possibility that this kind of Uh, divisive and doctrinaire conspiracy theorizing could actually be intended by the intelligence services. Uh, It it might actually be a part of intelligence operations to encourage and then to wield uh, to their advantage, you know, such forms of conspiracy theorizing. So could you explain how that might work? Why that seems a likely possibility to you? Um, well, OK, you're right. I have been accused of working for MI5. I will <laughs> once again categorically deny that I have never, will never and do not work for MI5 or any of their various other agencies that uh, it might be suggested that I do. But the, the irony in that one is that people have accused me of working for MI5 because I'm the one standing there saying, forget about Canary Wharf and Peter Power. MI5 is the real story to which they respond, oh, well, you haven't endorsed my conspiracy theory. You must be working for MI5. Mm. <laughs> it's moronic, to be honest, but, you know, this is, this is the world we've got. Um, I'll take your word for this. I, I believe you. You don't work for MI5. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I, I think the reason why um, dogmatism in the truth movement, in the conspiracy movement, in the alternative media, in whatever you want to call these phenomena, I mean, the reason why they would want to encourage that is precisely what you just said, because it creates camps. It creates the, oh, I'm a Canary Wharf conspiracy theorist about 7-7. And so anyone who doesn't want to talk about Canary Wharf, well, they must be part of a different camp. They must not, they must not be a real truther. They must not be a real investigator. They must not be a real alternative. Um, and I'm not suggesting that anyone who believes the Canary Wharf thing isn't real in some way. I'm just saying I think that they're wrong. I think that they're, they're being misled by a, a story that doesn't have an awful lot of evidence going for it. I'm not concluding from that that they're a fake or anything. I'm just saying that's my opinion about it. And that's why I don't go on about Canary Wharf. And yet I, I bear the brunt of quite a lot of accusations because of that kind of attitude. But having seen this play out in 7-7 and having seen it play out into the sorts of camps that were all predicted in the predictive programming, I do feel that's one reason to believe that this has been deliberate and that they've they've played us to a certain extent and managed to kind of destroy the alternative investigation into 7-7 or at least make it not as relevant as it really should have been. Um, the other reason is this, this mysterious Cass Sunstein paper. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that, indeed. Yeah, Cass Sunstein was the, yeah. is this academic who later became a kind of Obama administration advisor. And he wrote a paper in 2008, I think it mm -hmm. was. Yeah, I think that's right. About conspiracy theories. And he advocates what he calls cognitive infiltration, which is basically where you get undercover agents to go into meetings, internet forums, whatever, uh, wherever these conspiracy theories are being discussed and to try and disrupt things try and make it so that everyone becomes well the, the precise policy that he advocates is to go in there and question the conspiracy theories and to try and introduce counter arguments and counter evidence but he's suggesting this in a public paper and so i don't think we should take that literally i don't think we should be at all suspicious of people who say but what about this bit of evidence? Or have you considered this question? I think that's all good, honest discussion. The danger comes in the opposite. The danger comes in those people who are unwilling to mm. consider any evidence outside their desired theory and desired paradigm and who are unable to or unwilling to venture down certain paths or uh, ask certain questions or, or criticize their own beliefs. And I think in publicly advocating a policy of infiltration, what he's done is successfully make a lot of conspiracy theorists more suspicious of anyone who's asking questions about their conspiracy theories. So they would be suspicious of me when... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so and, I, I, I thought this was fascinating. So you, you, you're suggesting that this essay itself is actually a form of cognitive infiltration, not so much calling for it, but it actually is an instance of it. Yeah. Absolutely. And the same with the Demos paper that was published a couple of years later, which is called The Power of Unreason, where they also advocate this policy of infiltration and along very, very similar lines. And it seems that, you know, if you're going to secretly infiltrate a group, you don't publish an academic paper saying we're going to secretly infiltrate you in a few months time. Yeah, yeah. The only reason to do that is if you want people to read it. And who are the sorts of people who would read an academic paper on conspiracy theories? It's conspiracy theorists. <laughs> yeah. So I, I must admit that not occurred to me actually until I read your book and, and saw the wisdom of what you were saying there. Because I, I must admit, I just I looked at it and I took it at face value and thought, yes, this is a policy here. 
But the idea that this was actually itself the playing out of that policy hadn't occurred to me. I think it was a brilliant point. Well, that's the sort of double bluff that you would expect an intelligence agency to come up with. And I'm not suggesting Cass Sunstein individually is working for the CIA or anyone. I'm suggesting mm-hmm. someone sort of tapped him up to this idea, perhaps. Uh, perhaps he doesn't remember because he doesn't remember writing the essay, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, he hasn't got that good a memory of what he's done. Um, so the origins of this essay are a little murky, let's say. Mm-hmm. But the idea there, I mean, and also that to take that at face value, I'm not trying to in any way criticize you here because a lot of people did take it at face value and I'm not trying to get at people who had that reaction. Um, but the idea that it, would be, it wouldn't be until 2008 that they would come up with that idea is silly. Let's face it, they've been infiltrating pretty much every radical organization and quite a lot of mainstream organizations yeah, yeah. for a long, 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 long time. Well, I can my, my, my knuckles are, are well and truly wrapped, <laughs> so that's fine. <laughs> I, I accept that. <laughs> no, sure. Be- you're, you're, you're keyed into this, of course, because this is the area that you're particularly looking at. Yeah, it? yeah. So I, I'm, I'm the sort of person who always thinks whenever I hear anything about the intelligence agencies, I think, is this some kind of bluff or double bluff or what is it that they're trying to get us to think rather than what is the information that they're giving us here? Because the information that they're giving us may be true, may be false. I'm not all that interested in that. I'm interested in the how do we defend ourselves against their deceptions? And we have to understand those deceptions in order to defend ourselves against them. So that's kind of what I'm focusing on and what I'm trying to do here. Sure. In a recent podcast, you say that you are becoming increasingly concerned that the alternative media, uh, of which you are a part, of which this is a part, is just not up to the job of getting to the truth about these things. Is that because you feel that the alternative media has been successfully controlled? Um, I don't know about controlled so much as diverted, perhaps. It's mm. been encouraged to go down a lot of routes that I don't think are particularly good for establishing the truth about specific events or even about more general trends. There isn't a lot of, to be honest, evidence-based discussion in the alternative media or the sorts of things that people accept as evidence are all too often just it's said so in a newspaper or it's said so in a book. The notion of taking those claims and saying, well, okay, what's the context? What's the backstory? What's the counter evidence? There isn't anywhere near enough of that. And I try and do it in, in my own work. I try and do it as much as possible. If I mean, you've read my book. You, you can see in there Absolutely. that yes. what I was trying to do, I every single claim that I've sort of made in that book, at some point, you can tell from the way I think, the way I've written it, I've thrown that one around. I've mm. tried to smash that one back over the net and say no. And it's only really the ones that have stuck that I persisted with. Because anything that I thought, there's an easy refutation of this, I've kind of tried to move on from because i think that's how you do a proper investigation what you're stuck with what you can't get rid of what there isn't any counter evidence to you have to take seriously and you have to be very very single-minded to go about that don't you and and yet we have all this you know there's one story after another being thrown at us all the time and it's really difficult not to you know to have your attention diverted all over the place and and not to concentrate on one thing whereas you have done that very very definitely and in great depth not many people do that no i know it's not a particularly easy thing to do i think it's a very worthwhile thing i mean i've i've, I've enjoyed doing this in a kind of sad i mean it's, it's a sad and horrible <laughs> topic but i've enjoyed doing it because i found it valuable i thought this investigation is something that needs to take place and why not just do it 
you know, mm-hmm. I've said this before in other interviews, rather than sitting around complaining that the mainstream media or the alternative media weren't doing something, I just thought I'll do it myself because I can. <laughs> um, and OK, maybe some other people can't. Maybe some other people won't for whatever reasons. I mean, whatever. I'm not going to sort of stand in judgment of them. I'm I'm just going to take on the responsibility of my own life. If I'm taking this seriously, I'm going to take it seriously. Um, why not? Sure. Sure, absolutely. Yes, and you've done a fantastic job, and yet it has to be said, you know, we still haven't got to the bottom of seven seven. So, do do you think we're ever going to get to the answers about this? Probably not. No, because I think the the cover up has been too effective. I've tried, devoted a lot of time and effort to this, and mm. I've got as far as I've got. I I make no great claim of victory, make no uh, great claim that this is the truth, but. What I do claim is that I looked at everything that I could find and I honestly tried to assess it in a rigorous way. And my films and my book are the, are the if you like, the, the public versions of that. You know, I asked all these questions. That's what I came up with. You make up your own mind how, how much truth you think I found or didn't find. Um, I think one major truth that you have discovered in it is that we have not been told the truth about it. <laughs> so, oh, we fundamentally haven't been yes, told the truth yes, about this. That's pretty clear. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'd certainly nail my colours to the mast on that claim. <laughs> um, <laughs> the official story of 7-7 isn't true. What you fill that space with, as I say, my primary suspects are MI5, but I don't have the, I don't have the, the investigative resources, or I suppose there isn't the political will to be able to prosecute a culprit like that. And so the best I could do was look at everything they've told us, try and pick through their lies as best as possible, try and demonstrate that there is an incriminating pattern of behavior here around MI5, and then publish that. And so that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, as I said right at the beginning of the show, that I think everybody should read this book, really do go and get this book. So can you, can you tell people where they can get hold of it? Of course. I mean, I, I published this book myself. You can... Uh, if you buy ebooks, um, you can get it on all the usual ebook places, you know, iTunes and Amazon and Barnes and Noble, all of those. Um, and it's incredibly cheap, I have to say, isn't it? <laughs> uh, um, it is. It is. Well, I didn't. <laughs> it is. I want the ebook to be accessible to people. It's well, I want the book to be accessible to people. I'd make the paperback cheaper, but you know, printing costs are printing costs up to a point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, if you want the paperback, you can get it through investigatingliterra.com or spyculture.com. If you go to either of my main websites, you'll see the advert on the homepage. You just click on that, and it takes you to the order page, and also where you can download the first chapter if you fancy a read of it first see what you're getting um and also a page where i've listed all my source material all of the you know police diagrams all the mi5 documents the whole lot you can it's all available for free on my website excellent and can you tell people about some of the other things that are on your websites as well because you've got a lot of research not just about 77 have you yeah i mean i have two main websites at the moment i am developing a third but that's nowhere near public consumption yet investigating the looks into this whole area not just as applied to 7-7, but as applied to quite a lot of other events as well. I don't talk about 9-11 that much, partly because there's so much on 9-11 out there. I don't have that much to kind of add to it. But, for example, the Mumbai massacre or uh, the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993, I have free e-books on both of those attacks and on the kind of background to this and the failure failure of the investigation into these events. Um, free document e-books. So this is all, you know, government-sourced paper trail showing... Some rather incriminating stuff, I think. Um, what recently happened in Kenya at the um, shopping mall, that's another one I've chased up. And that links up with 7-7 in some interesting ways, too. 
so that's what you get on investigatingtheterror.com is a exploration of the links between the security state and terrorism. On my other website, spyculture.com, you get the a, my investigation of the links between the security state and culture producers. So Hollywood, the BBC, people who make films, people who write books, whatever. And I just applied the same basic research methods to that topic and trying to understand that wing of what the security state is up to. Because I'm not only interested, as I'm sure people listening to this will, will grasp, I'm not only interested in the kind of terrorism side of this, the criminal investigation. I'm also interested in the public perception and propaganda aspect of all of this. There are a lot of connections between the intelligence services and the culture industries. For example, last year's Oscars, the best picture, the competition was between Argo and Zero Dark Thirty. And both of those films had cooperation in their production from the CIA. And this is a documentable fact. So, you know, this is a real phenomenon that's going on now. So, yeah, sorry, I, I'm kind of <laughs> Julian. If no, no, that, that's absolutely fine. You sell your website. That's, that's great. Yeah. But you also have a podcast as well. Do you want to say something about that before we, before we end? Yeah, sure. If you check out on spyculture.com, if you click on the podcast tab, you get my, pod, my new podcast that's been running for a few months now called Clandestine, where I look into all sorts of things to do with the security services and, and intelligence and propaganda and so on. Not just what the sorts of things we've been talking about today, but even broader discussion than that. So yes, that's on spyculture.com and it's also on YouTube, Clandestine. Mm-hmm. And you've got some great music on there. I must ask you where, where you got that music from. Um, well, what, what the, the sort of remix of the James Bond? That's right, yes. That's one by a, a group uh, that was made in the 1980s by, uh, I think they're called The Art of Noise. I think that's what they were called. Uh, that's a, that's their, their music that I've shamelessly borrowed. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect for what you're doing there, I must say. I almost laughed out loud when I first heard it, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny song. Yeah. <laughs> well, I try and inject a bit of fun into the podcast because these are grisly and to some extent depressing topics and I get sure. that and I get that's why an awful lot of people just don't want to think about it but I inject try and inject as much fun into what I do as possible partly because otherwise I'd become a bit down and a bit depressed by it all and I want to keep going at this I want to keep doing this for, for the rest of my life and so I have to kind of have a bit of fun doing it so I do Wonderful. Well, thanks very much for sharing that fun with us in your podcast, and uh, thanks ever so much for coming on the show as well. I mean, it's a it's tremendously difficult, as I said before, subject to engage with in just by reading the book and trying to absorb it all in a few sittings. Uh, so thank you ever so much for teasing it apart here during this interview, and I hope that people have got a good view about all the problems associated with this, and then we'll actually go and read your book. So thank you ever so much for coming on and sparing all this time to be with us. Thank you, Julian. It's been a pleasure talking to you.